Hello, Incarnation. This is Pastor Taylor. And I'm sending out this message as a direct pastoral response to the issues that we are facing in our nation today. The systemic racial injustice, the police brutality that recently led to the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, and so many others. To the many valid, peaceful protests and passionate pleas for justice that have occurred as a result of these events and as a result of 400 years of systemic oppression. And to address some of the violence and the rioting and the ways that anger and pain have resulted in the death of others. All people are created in the image of God and therefore Christians can rightly say that black lives matter especially when the value and worth of our black brothers and sisters have been so egregiously violated on video for all eyes to see. O Lord, we stand with those who have been lynched on the streets without rights, trial, or due process, choked for eight minutes and 46 seconds, while pleas for mercy fell on deaf ears. All people are created in the image of God. Therefore, as Christians, we also decry the random acts of violence and revenge that ensue whenever riots break out. The savage beating of perfect strangers, including women, and the shooting of random police officers who may or may not have been sympathetic to the cause. This is also an affront to our Creator. In view of all this, and in the midst of these politically charged times, I believe that the Lord has put a word on my heart, and it's been forming over the last week. As I've waited for the words to form, I've embraced the Archbishop's call to prayer and fasting, and I've been meditating on the question, what would Jesus do if he were incarnate in our American context today? How would he respond to the complex justice issues that we're facing? I believe that God's word can speak into these situations and that Jesus' example, being under the heel of Roman oppression throughout his entire earthly life, can chart a course for how Christians should react and respond to the situation at hand. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. In other words, it cuts both ways, to the left and to the right, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Would you pray with me as I begin? Father, right now I want to pray that you would sharpen both edges of the sword. And because we believe that your Spirit's conviction leads us to holiness and wholeness and eternal life, I pray that your word would pierce every heart, that none would be spared, because we all long to look more like your Son, Jesus, to the glory of your name on this broken earth. Amen. Amen. So today I want to look at four different responses to oppression and to the brokenness of the world in Jesus' day. The way of separation, the way of privilege, the way of the sword, and the way of religiosity. 
these four responses were embodied by four different Jewish factions in the first century. And I want to show how the way of Jesus and the Gospels stood in stark contrast from each of these options. All of this is intended to encourage us to a more fundamental and foundational commitment to the way of Jesus, who is the only one among them who could rightly declare, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Far too often today, I find that Christians are engaging in faith through the lens of politics rather than engaging with politics through the lens of faith. And so if the Lord can use this message to turn that egregious error on its head, then it'll be well worth it. All right, so the first group we want to look at is the mysterious sect known as the Essenes. And we might summarize their response to the troubles of the world as the way of separation. The great Jewish historian Josephus mentions the Essenes among the prominent Jewish groups of the first century, and they've become all the more famous in recent years due to their likely connection with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Essenes had a confused view of the sovereignty of God, which basically led them to inactivity. They responded to the problems of the world by separating themselves and focusing on ritual purity. Believing that the rest of the Jews were compromised and that the temple had been polluted and that the world was drawing to an end, this group literally headed for the hills, choosing to dwell in relative obscurity, in caves or in the desert, waiting for God to intervene and sort out their enemies. Now, this is an impulse that we still find among religious people today, although it goes by different names. We call it things like 24-7 prayer cloistered monasticism, or the Benedict option. Whatever we call it, the basic temptation is to stand so far aloof from the world that we're no longer engaged, no longer willing to serve, no longer a witness. Perhaps some of us are feeling this way in the midst of the racial upheaval in our country right now. Like we just want to lock ourselves away, have a good long devotional time, and wait for the storm to pass. But the way of Jesus stands in stark contrast to the separational approach of the Essenes. Consider Jesus' famous words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. He told his disciples, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, according to Jesus, a lamp doesn't belong under a basket. It belongs on a stand. And salt isn't meant to remain in the salt shaker. It's meant to season and preserve the world. In the same way, his followers were called to a life of impact, to glorifying the Father through tangible and impactful deeds. We know that Jesus called us to pray against injustice, but that's not all he called us to do. So the Essenes were separational, but Jesus was incarnational. 
Jesus left the comfort of heaven, took on human flesh, dwelt in the midst of the people, and sought to bring the good news to bear in the here and now. And we should too. The second group we'll look at is the Sadducees. They represent the way of privilege. These were the wealthy and powerful ruling elite amongst the temple priests. As many a youth group kid can testify, the Sadducees rejected the reality of angels, the resurrection of the body, and eternal life because they were sad, you see. In contrast with the otherworldliness of the Essenes who rejected the pleasures of this life and any compromise with Rome, the worldly Sadducees sidled up and sucked up to their Roman oppressors so long as it meant that they could keep their position of power and privilege. This is the kind of group that could turn a blind eye to the Roman soldiers stationed all around Jerusalem, to the exorbitant taxation of the masses, and even to the crucifixion of their Jewish brethren, and respond by saying, Oppression? What oppression? Injustice? What injustice? I'm afraid that it's this option, the way of privilege, that many white Christians today are choosing to embrace when they deny that America has a problem with systemic racism. Many white Christians view racism as a matter of individual sin that has little to no institutional impact. But brothers and sisters, is this really the way that sin works? Doesn't individual greed eventually lead to insider trading and government bailouts? And doesn't individual lust eventually lead to the porn industry and to a normalized culture of sexualized movies and advertising? If that's true, why would racism work any differently? For those wondering whether racism is an issue of systemic injustice, and not just a matter of individual sins, I ask you to consider Ahmaud Arbery's murder in reverse. Now, anyone can commit murder, but can you imagine two black men gunning down a random white man who was jogging in such a bold-faced way and then actually thinking they can somehow get away with it? And can you imagine it taking so long for an arrest to happen? Don't get me wrong, I thank God the arrest finally did happen. But the perpetrator's presumption of immunity and the delay of common sense justice is evidence of a racist ecosystem which emboldens debased individuals. I think it was a paradigmatic example of systemic racism at work. If white Christians need more examples, I might point them to the inequities of a school system that's funded by the income tax of the surrounding neighborhoods, to the relatively recent history of banks denying loans to black customers through a widespread practice known as redlining, and to decades of unchecked police brutality with far too little accountability. As white Christians... Are we willing to speak up about these things and advocate for our black and brown brothers and sisters, even if it causes us to lose some credibility and privileges? Let us not imitate the Sadducees, but instead embrace the way of Jesus. Jesus rejected the way of privilege in order to embrace the way of sacrificial love. 2 Corinthians 8.9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In other words, Jesus was willing to set aside his own heavenly rights in order to lift up the plight of others. He was willing to lose privileges so that we might gain privileges. And Jesus called for his followers to embrace this same kind of sacrifice. Jesus was always very realistic on this point. One time when someone asked to follow him, Jesus warned the man about the kinds of personal comforts that might be lost in the process. He said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The third group I want to look at is the zealots, the nationalistic freedom fighters who responded to oppression by embracing the way of the sword. This movement was founded right around the time of Jesus' birth, and it embraced all sorts of guerrilla tactics and anti-Roman activity. Some of their leaders even made messianic claims. The zealots carried hidden daggers and were famous for utilizing the cover of large crowds at festivals so that their violence always remained anonymous. Sometimes the zealots organized themselves into small armies, and at other times they embraced random acts of mayhem. They were even willing to brutalize their fellow Jews, subjecting them to cruel persecution if they suspected them of sympathizing with Rome. Now, I think it's worth noting that Jesus was willing to interact with the zealots. He even invited one of them into his band of 12 apostles. But ultimately and unequivocally, Jesus rejected the way of violence. When Peter took up weapons on his behalf, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. When Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews in John 18, Jesus responded, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And Jesus' example of nonviolence would continue among his followers for centuries afterwards, even as the church and Christianity was declared an illegal religion and persecuted believers were fed to the lions and burned at the stake and crucified upside down. But even in the midst of extreme suffering, their testimony of faithfulness to God and love for their fellow man would often win the hearts of those who watched them die. As Tertullian would later say, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, it would be untrue to say that Christians never defended themselves. But it is true to say that they never sought to overthrow Rome through violence. They never embraced rioting, and they rejected the hidden daggers of the zealots. It was their love, even for their enemies, that conquered all. And it was their love that demonstrated their deep identification with the way of Jesus, the crucified King. But there are many Christians today that are entertaining sympathies with the way of the zealots. To some extent, this is understandable because the injustice has been going on for so long and the pain runs so deep. For that reason, I have massive spiritual respect 
for Terrence Floyd, the brother of George, who, speaking at a prayer vigil just days after his brother's murder, urged the crowds to protest peacefully and to reject violence. He said, quote, I understand that you're upset, but I doubt you're half as upset as I am. So if I'm not over here blowing up stuff, if I'm not over here messing up my community, then what are you doing? You're doing nothing because that's not going to bring my brother back. It may feel good in the moment, but when you come down, you're going to wonder what you did. I'm grateful for the Christ-like grace of Terrence Floyd, who is a brother in the Lord. He follows a rich history of nonviolent Christian activism. People like Desmond Tutu, Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, William Wilberforce, and John Woolman, people who made real changes to the real world. In general, I think the church has become too timid about denouncing random acts of violence in the wake of our racial crisis. Because maybe it makes us seem less ardent about the cause for racial justice on social media. Or maybe it makes us seem less sympathetic toward the pain of the oppressed. But brothers and sisters, this is a false dichotomy. The other day I was watching an old debate between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And Malcolm X was criticizing MLK's commitment to nonviolent activism, calling it psychologically unrealistic and referring to Martin Luther King as a 20th century religious Uncle Tom. This is a sad mischaracterization of Martin Luther King Jr., especially considering that in 1968, far from being an Uncle Tom, he was one of the most hated men in America. He may be beloved today, but he was not then. MLK responded to Malcolm X saying, I don't think love in this context is a weakness. He said there's a great deal of difference between non-resistance to evil and non-violent resistance. Non-resistance leaves you in a state of stagnant passivity and deadening complacency, whereas non-violent resistance means that you do resist in a very strong and determined manner. Recently, Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, Dr. Bernice King, was speaking on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and she's been on this crusade lately about all the ways that her father is being misused and misquoted. First of all, she says that her father never advocated for colorblindness, as if all our problems would be solved if we simply avoided the topic of race. Martin Luther King Jr. never advocated for colorblindness, but for racial equality. Secondly, when he talked about riots as the language of the unheard, he was not justifying or endorsing race riots. He was simply explaining their psychological roots. To the end, MLK always maintained that riots were both immoral and self-defeating, and that they were a sad departure from the way of Jesus. So much for the way of the zealots. The final group that I want to look at is the Pharisees, the lay rabbis and scrupulous law keepers of the day. The Pharisees embraced the way of religiosity. They believed that Israel was under Roman oppression because they had been disobedient to the Lord, and therefore the solution was rigorous religious obedience. 
To this end, they sought to uphold every regulation found in the law of Moses, even those that were only intended for the priests, and they taught others to do the same, even building a fence around the law by adding new rules to ensure that no one would even get close to breaking God's rules. In fact, the Pharisees were rightly criticized by the Sadducees for making up too many rules and traditions that God never commanded. Jesus would make similar criticisms of the Pharisees, saying that they were hypocrites or play actors who focused on washing the outside of the cup to the neglect of cleaning the inside. The Pharisees were hyper-focused on the rules, while Jesus was hyper-focused on the heart. In Matthew 23, verses 23 through 24, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin. You could see them counting these spices. But he says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. In the context The gnat was the smallest of unclean insects for the Jewish people. And the camel was the largest of unclean animals. So Jesus is using hyperbolic language to say that by tithing on their garden herbs, but neglecting the weightier matters of the law, the Pharisees were straining the gnat and swallowing the camel. And what were the weightier matters according to Jesus? He says it plainly. Justice and mercy, and faithfulness. I wonder if we, when we consider the racial injustices in our country, both past and present, whether we view these issues as weighty to the heart of God. Or do we dismiss them and say that they're not gospel issues, or perhaps it would be best not even to speak about such things because it might hinder evangelism. The Gospels remind us that Jesus didn't dismiss important matters of justice. And the epistles remind us that Jesus died not just to reconcile us vertically to God, but to reconcile us horizontally to one another, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that stood between us. In fact, the only time when an apostle ever rebuked another apostle in the New Testament is when Peter is pulling back from fellowship with the Gentiles and Paul confronts him to his face, saying that he stands condemned. Brothers and sisters, our reconciliation to one another in Christ is indeed part of the gospel. And it's the reason why Christianity became the very first multi-ethnic and global religious movement in human history. In many ways, if we're not careful, the Bible-believing Christians of today can end up looking an awful lot like the Pharisees. Sometimes we invent rules that are not in the Bible, like don't drink, don't dance, and you can only read the King James Version of the Bible. And then we make keeping these rules the standard of spiritual maturity. Yet time and time again, the scriptures make clear what's really important. In Micah 6, 8, the prophet asks God's people the question, And what does the Lord require of you? And he answers, To do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
The point is that modern Christians are not immune to the errors of the Pharisees. We also can get too fixated on the minutiae and start inventing rules, setting up our own systems of religiosity that are actually miles away from God's heart. For this reason, I think we need to be careful in our present historical moment not to miss out on God's heart for racial justice. You may answer that there are other things that God cares about. Abortion and just war, global and domestic poverty, the widespread persecution of believers, and of course, world evangelization. And I would say, amen. God does care about those things. But this is not some kind of zero-sum game. Valuing racial justice more doesn't mean valuing those things less. In fact, on the contrary, I believe when our conscience becomes more engaged with one thing that God cares about, he often expands our hearts to include new issues of kingdom concern and gives us the passion and faith to make a real impact in the world. All right. So far, we've looked at the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Pharisees. But there was one more looming historical figure in first century Israel that Jesus chose to call out by name, doubling down on the prophetic example of John the Baptist. I'm talking about the Roman client king known as Herod. And here, I hope you'll hear me in love. Because when I read our own president's tweet from over a week ago, issued in the midst of so much tension and division in our country, the one that said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Honestly, my pastoral antenna went up. And the first thing that popped into my head were the words of Jesus in Mark eight fifteen, where he cautioned his disciples saying, watch out, beware of the yeast of Herod. Now, why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus call out a political figure by name? Because Jesus believed that his disciples, the sheep of his pasture, were in danger of being influenced by Herod, and they needed a pastoral warning. And I believe that Christians today need to be warned against the spiritual and moral influence of our own president. Far too often, we have seen President Trump speak and react in ways that are narcissistic, juvenile, and divisive, stirring the pot when what we need most is unity. Far too often, I've heard Christians defend the indefensible. How can we go on making excuses for this kind of behavior without it affecting our own moral standards and inner attitudes? As the scriptures say, Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. That is the way that the yeast of Herod works its way through the dough. It's subtle and dangerous. It starts with giving a leader the benefit of the doubt and having charitable assumptions, which is a good thing. But then as the yeast works its way into the deeper layers of the dough, It can degenerate into offering a leader moral immunity, a free pass in the eyes of the church, thereby selling off our prophetic birthright. 
The night after Trump issued that tweet, he was found criticizing one of his political enemies in the rudest of ways on Twitter at 1 a.m., calling him a deranged loser of a husband. Then he issued a statement calling for governors to, quote, dominate unless they want to look like jerks in the midst of the protesting and rioting. Finally, he drove peaceful protesters, including a priest, away from St. John's Episcopal Church with tear gas and rubber bullets so that he could pose for an awkward picture with someone else's Bible. And you know it's gotten bad when a Republican president is sharply criticized by the likes of Pat Robertson, former Defense Secretary George Mattis, and George W. Bush in the same week. But I applaud these conservative leaders for their ability to maintain a clear-headed distinction between what the president does and says and what is actually right and wrong. Now, some of you will wonder, why is Taylor saying all this? Why is he getting so political? Is it because he's a liberal after all and he just wants us all to vote Democrat? And the truth is, that I'm a follower of Jesus above all else, and the rest of these concerns are far from my mind. If my views on abortion and marriage and personal moral responsibility make me sound like a conservative at times, so be it. And on the other hand, if my views on racism, gun control, and my attitude toward the poor make me sound like a liberal at times, so be it. I will follow Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. It is a confused culture that continues to make these arbitrary moral distinctions, but I don't see them in the Word of God. The bottom line, and the reason I'm quoting Jesus and saying, beware of the yeast of Herod, is that I'm genuinely concerned for how this president is conducting himself and how it's impacting our moral and spiritual lives when we defend and make excuses for this kind of egregious behavior. And I want to echo Jesus' warning to beware in our present moment. All right, if I haven't lost you yet, let me summarize as I begin to draw to a close. Today we've looked at four different Jewish factions from the first century and showed how each responded to the injustice and brokenness of their world in different ways. The Essenes chose the way of separation, heading for the hills and waiting for God to sort everyone out. In contrast, Jesus calls us to be salt and light. The Sadducees embraced the way of privilege, submitting to the Romans so long as it meant that they were able to maintain their wealth and position. In contrast, Jesus was moved by love to set aside his privilege, leave his home in heaven, and he wandered the earth with no place to rest his head in order that he might lift us up. The zealots chose the way of the sword. In contrast, Jesus condemned violence done in his name, saying that his kingdom was not of this world, and encouraging his disciples to resist evil with the spiritual weapons of love and faith. Finally, the Pharisees chose the way of religiosity, building a fence around the law with new rules that distracted them from the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness straining the gnat and swallowing the camel. The way of separation, the way of privilege,
the way of the sword, the way of religiosity, these were not the way of Jesus. So what does this mean for his followers today? What does this mean for the church that bears his name? Does it mean that we should build relationships with people who don't look like us? That we should empower ethnic minority leaders in the church and in the marketplace? That we should regularly pray for justice? That we should peacefully protest in an organized and intentional way? Does it mean that we should make charitable donations to advance the cause of racial justice? It probably means all of those things. My one pastoral plea at this point is that whatever you do, it should involve less time on social media, which I believe is spiritually toxic, and more time building actual relationships and tangibly serving our fellow man. The culture of shaming, self-justification, and the pharisaical thought policing we find on social media, which by its very nature focuses on the outside of the cup, is a poor substitute for the true conviction of the Holy Spirit, which alone can transform people from the inside out. Consider taking a month off of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram while you sort out how you are called to respond to our present moment. No one needs our commentary, and I believe that posting and commenting can turn into a kind of phantom action that substitutes for the pursuit of tangible love and justice. But most importantly, I want to call us to be followers of Jesus. We are not called to be the kinds of people who view our faith through the lens of politics, but people who view politics through the lens of the one who declared, I am the way and the truth and the life and who called us to be devoted to his way above all else. Jesus not only responded in total and complete righteousness to the oppression and brokenness of the Roman world in which he dwelled, charting a course for us to follow today, but on the cross, he also underwent the ultimate form of identification with all who have ever or will ever face injustice. The Son of God became a member of an oppressed ethnic group, and without just cause or reason or due process, he was hung on a tree until he died of asphyxiation. And when he died, he prayed for his oppressors, saying, Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. And when he died, he fulfilled all love and all justice. And when he died, he died for the life of the world so that the enemies of God might become his sons and daughters by faith. And when he died, he didn't stay dead. And the fact that he lives is the hope of the world in our present times and for all times. In his name, amen.